So this morning, we're continuing our series, If God is Good. And what we're trying to respond to is all of the questions that we ask after that statement. If God is good, exactly. Um, <laughs> if God is good, you know, what about evil? What about suffering, terrorism, disease, um, you know, death of innocent children and, you know, all sorts of complex, um, heartbreaking questions that we as humans have been asking for thousands of years. Uh, And as we said last week, it's not our attempt to answer this question in a nice, tidy way, but to enter the question uh, with our world, with people that might be asking and wrestling with this. And we're in good company because uh, writers, even in the Bible, We're struggling with this question as well, trying to understand it. Philosophers throughout history have asked this question. And last week we looked at two problems, uh, the biblical problem and the philosophical problem. The biblical problem that we chat about was in reference to retributive theology or retributive suffering, which uh, is basically parenting 101. If you do this, Joel Luke Silas, uh, then this is going to happen. And if you listen, I'll give you a chocolate bar. That's parenting 101, isn't it? Our basic go-to, maybe you're better than I am, but uh, that's my parenting 101. It's not going to end well for you if you don't listen to me, and it's going to be great for you if you do. And we see this idea throughout Scripture, and it's fundamental to the Jewish understanding of God, that God was going to bless his people if they lived in obedience to him and his law and the things that he... He spoke to them on how to live. Blessing would follow. But if they disobeyed God and lived apart from him, then they would experience hardship and suffering. But the biblical problem comes into play when the Jewish people looked around at the world and they said, I understand that this is what God said, and I still trust that God is good on his word, but I'm trying really, really hard to be obedient and I'm still suffering. And I look over there at those who are wicked, and it looks like they're thriving. And so in the Psalms and Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of Job, uh, the prophets, in all these writings in the Old Testament, you see this dominant theme of God's people wrestling with what God had said versus the reality in which they find themselves. So retributive theology, um, although they held to it as true, they wrestled with how that actually works in reality and what what does that timing look like. And we're going to talk about that more in future weeks. Uh, We also talked about the philosophical problem, which is where I want to pick it up again today. The philosophical problem being that God exists, that God is good, God is all-powerful, and evil exists. Four truths that followers of Jesus believe. But this has been a philosophical problem for many people throughout history because they look at these four truths and they see them uh, as inconsistent. How can one, two, three, and four all be true at the same time? If God is all-powerful and all-good, then how does evil exist? If Um, or does evil even exist? Uh, People throughout history 
Um, one of the stances we, we looked at, sorry, we looked at ten, we looked at ten easy answers last week, and said basically that people throughout history have neglected one of those four truths in order to find an easy answer to that problem. We won't re, re go through those this morning. You can look on the online that contents there. Uh, something that Christians have done to kind of supplement this problem is they increase that God is all powerful. But the problem with this is that when you, when you start to focus that God is all-powerful, all-sovereign, that God ultimately becomes the author of all that is evil as well. And the response to that is, well, maybe what's evil is actually good and we just don't understand that. And so there's a mystery in there that, they, uh, that those people that would increase the sovereignty, the powerfulness of God would live within. But I think there's a better way uh, I think there's a better answer than that. Um, and that's kind of what we're going to journey through this morning and then particularly land on next week. So just a reminder, if you only come to one of these talks, you're going to leave disappointed. You might come to all four and still leave disappointed. Uh, but they do kind of build on each other. So I'd encourage you, if you're scratching your head or, I'm not quite sure about this morning or what I think, just keep, keep coming, be patient. Uh, we can't cover all the content, even in four sermon series, it would take us a lifetime, but uh, at least we'll give it a good amount of time over the next few weeks. So I want to look at point number four here in the, this philosophical problem. What is evil? We often think of evil as equal to pain and suffering. And the philosophical problem is often referred to as the problem of evil or the problem of pain or the problem of suffering. But is it really true that evil equals suffering and pain? Are those things the same thing? And I think if we take a step back, we would and look at the biblical documents, if we look at our own experiences in life, it doesn't take very long to recognize that pain and suffering is not necessarily the same thing as evil. All sin will eventually result in hardship. That, that's what we learn in Scripture. But the problem is that people think there must be a connection between those two. Sin results in suffering, but it's not true that all suffering is because of sin. Where did evil start? Where did it come from? You know, we have nice, neat answers to these questions. You know, often people look at Genesis 3 as the beginning of evil. You know, they have this... Um, this idea that has been taught in church history that um, Satan was this fallen angel before the creation of the world and that the serpent we see in Genesis 3 is Satan. But the problem is that the Bible doesn't really teach it. People get that idea from Isaiah 14, but Isaiah 14 is talking about Babylon, the fall of Babylon. Not specifically the fall of Satan. Ezekiel 28 is talking about the fall of the king of Tyre in 539 BC. There's some similar language there to what people find in Luke 10, which talks about the fall of Satan. But in Luke 10, the fall of Satan happens when the disciples go out and they preach the good news and they say they saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And so they take that content, they put it into Ezekiel and Isaiah and they think that Satan must have fallen from heaven pre-creation 
We also see the fall of Satan being hurled down in Revelations 12 after the resurrection of Christ. So does Satan fall after the resurrection of Christ at the preaching of the disciples? Is it the, should we read the fall of Satan into Isaiah and Ezekiel? And the answer is, I don't know. Thanks for coming. We need to be careful of quick, easy answers, especially when the Bible doesn't give us quick, easy answers. Where did pain come from? Well, we assume that pain came in Genesis 3. The serpent came, sin entered the world, and pain and suffering entered the world. But one of the consequences of Adam and Eve turning their backs on God is that God said to Eve that you, your pain in childbirth will Increase. Interesting idea. It assumes that there was pain before that point. But that it would would be more intense because of sin. Is it feasible that there was an Eden, that there was a harmonized world, that evil did not rule in, but yet there was still pain and suffering in a good way? The scripture doesn't teach any relation to suffering and it's linked to the fall of Satan or the fall of man, but people want to find the origin of evil and suffering. But the truth is, you can look throughout the whole Bible and you're not really going to find it. Okay, Matt, you're not really helping us out here. I thought I came to church for answers this morning. So let's ask another question. Who's behind suffering and pain? It's fascinating when we look at the scope of Scripture and pay attention to all the passages where God causes suffering. If if you look on the screen, these are um, all of the passages in Scripture. It's almost exhaustive, I, I can't guarantee you, but anyways, you can see that it's a lot, where God actually causes suffering. And we don't we don't like that idea. And so there's lots of people that deny the idea that God could cause suffering, but it's there. But here's an interesting angle to take on it. If we look at all the passages where God causes suffering, let's look at the passages in the New Testament where God causes suffering. Those five or six there at the bottom. And those five or six passages there at the bottom are referring to a type of uh, restorative suffering where God uses suffering to actually help mature believers. Uh, Suffering is discipline. Some references to the Old Testament uh, scriptures of God causing suffering. Now let's look at the scripture passages where... It refers to the activity of Satan, the devil, or the serpent. Uh, And there they are there. And what gets really fascinating, if we look at the where where is the activity of Satan and the devil in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? If you go to the next slide there. Those are the Old Testament mentions of Satan. Genesis 
obviously referring to the serpent. The serpent wasn't identified as Satan until later in the New Testament, and we know that now that we read back on Genesis. We see references there in First and Second Chronicles, Job, and, a, and the two prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah. But let me show you something interesting. If your Bibles turn to First Chronicles 21 with me. First Chronicles 21, verse 1, says that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of, census of Israel. If you know the story, basically David's trying to check to make sure he's got enough strength in his army, and so he decides to, to count, what, see what his numbers are like, and God sees that as evil because he's not putting his faith in the Lord. And here in 1 Chronicles 21, it says that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to do this. But look at 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you go back just a couple of books there. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. It says this, and it's the exact same story, except there's one minor detail that's different. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Interesting. The same account, the same story. On one account, we have that God is inciting David to do this, which would result in David's own suffering and pain and that of Israel. The next passage we have that Satan was the one that did this. So which one is it? Second Samuel was written somewhere between 1000 BC and 960 BC, whereas First Chronicles, the one that mentions Satan, was written between 450 BC and 425 BC. So a difference of 500 plus years. And on top of this, if you look at the instances of natural evil, so there's moral evil, you know, caused by human beings, personal evil, or natural disasters, natural evil. There are approximately 100 verses in Scripture that link God with natural disasters, yet natural disasters aren't talked about very much in the New Testament, but when they are, uh, they're never, God is never attributed as the cause of natural disasters outside of the book of Revelation. So, are you confused yet? You might feel like I'm making this situation more complicated, and my intent is not to make it complicated for the sake of being more complicated, but just to take out the option of nice, clean, easy answers to the problem of evil. And just to simply observe that in Scripture, there's a variety of causes, there's a variety of reasons why suffering and pain exist. That suffering and pain can be a result of evil, but not necessarily. And also to observe that there seems to be a development in the concept of God and evil from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That over time, the Jewish people, the Christians, actually expanded their understanding of evil, understanding of God, and it, it's not so cut and dry in the New Testament as it was in the Old Testament. 
What happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament that would cause such a dramatic shift in thinking about God and evil? Come back next week and we'll talk about it. But what can we conclude about evil, about suffering? We can, when we look at Scripture, we can conclude that Satan is a part of suffering. We can attribute some to Satan, but we cannot attribute all suffering to him. Suffering can come from God, according to the Bible. Suffering can come from natural laws, the laws of nature, the universe. You know, if I you know, t- take my skis and go off a cliff, because I think I can land that 50-foot drop, and I end up breaking all of my bones. Is that God's fault or is that my fault? Or is it natural laws of nature that I just didn't listen to? Suffering can come at the hands of other free human beings that use their God-given freedom to hurt someone else. But suffering is not equal to evil, even though evil can bring about suffering. So if we revisit the philosophical problem, uh, that God is good. But what is good? We often associate good with our comfort, with our security, with pleasure. But is that really the same thing as good? And we talk about God being good. Why do we assume that our definition of good is God's definition? And if we truly take a step back, our experience as we look at Scripture, we realize that goodness is not necessarily equal to comfort, pleasure, and security. And I want to illustrate this. I want to draw your attention to the idea of a megaphone. I couldn't find my Mexico megaphone. Any of you guys been to Mexico? So you know I'm well-versed in the art of megaphone. I can yell through the megaphone very effectively, you know, Parents, when you can't get your 14-year-old out of bed in the morning, I've got an idea for you. (laughs) I've done it for years, and it works beautifully. It's a megaphone. And even before we started doing megaphones in Mexico, um, I was doing megaphones in youth group. I would go into the houses of sleeping children at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., and I would go into their rooms and we'd take a video camera. Actually, why am I telling you? Let's just, just take a look. I'll, we'll, we'll just show you. Let's show you what I used to do. Megaphone number four, we've got the triple attack this morning. We're going after Brendan Tackerberry. Let's go.
Brandon. <laughs> so how's your morning so far, Brandon? Not bad. What you been up to? What you been up to? No, just oh, sleeping. what's this about? By the sound of the megaphone. Freaking idiots! Aaron, was Aaron, how was that for you? Uh, not very good. All right, that works. Boxes are just like shorts, right? Hey, thanks, mom. No problem. That was a good time. I didn't ask the Tackerberry's permission to show that one this morning, so. So that was it. That was awesome. We used to have parents that signed their kids up, and uh, we'd have like this long list, and we'd, we'd say, if you want us to come and wake your kids up with a megaphone, just sign up, and, and we'd, so we'd do this. It was tiring. Um, we tried to do it every week, but it got old after a couple of years. <laughs> But parents loved it because it made the kids were afraid of getting their room videotaped and it being messy, so it made them actually clean their rooms, which was a... C.S. Lewis said that pain insists on being attended to, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone for a deaf world. Pain is the megaphone of God for a deaf world. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40, we have this healing story. It says, A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hands and touched the man and said, I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. You might say, what does this story have anything to do with Pain. Well, did you know that in this instance, Jesus healed this man so that he could experience pain? Jesus healed him so that he could experience pain. Leprosy is indeed cruel, but not in the manner that other diseases are cruel. Primarily, it works like an anesthetic. It attacks the pain cells of the hands, the feet, the nose, the ears, the eyes, it makes them numb. You might think that's not so bad. Most diseases are feared because of their pain, but what makes this leprosy, this painful disease, so horrible? Leprosy's numbing quality is precisely the reason for the fabled destruction of tissue. For thousands of years, people thought the disease was the one that, that caused skin, body parts to deteriorate, ulcers on the hands and feet and the face, infection, uh, there's a doctor named Paul Brand, not Paul Brandt, not the country singer, um, but Paul Brand, who did some pioneering research in India, and he established that in virtually all cases, leprosy only numbs the extremities. So he kind of, this doctor observed these 
people that had leprosy, and he observed that someone reached directly into a charcoal fire to retrieve a potato that someone else dropped, and they didn't feel any pain, but they burnt their flesh. Someone was in the garden working, oblivious to blood running down their hand. Bran examined the shovel and found a nail protruding just as the spot in his hand where he had been gripping. Some people extinguish burning wicks with their bare hands. Others would walk barefoot along broken glass, oblivious to the fact that their feet were getting cut up. So he formed this radical theory that leprosy was chiefly anesthetic. And that it's because of that that people, their, uh, their hands, their feet, their body parts would deteriorate. Ankle injuries, people would tear their tendons, but they wouldn't know that, and so they'd walk around with these you know, ankles that were all messed up and would just get worse and worse. People's toes and fingers, he would notice in the mornings, uh, would be deteriorating, would be disappearing while they were sleeping. But then they realized that rats were coming into the rooms in the middle of the night and nibbling on the fingers and toes of the leprosy patients. And they would continue to feed on their fingers and the toes because the people couldn't feel it. Leprosy has become known as Hansen's disease. See, pain serves us to tell us when something isn't right, and without pain, we would actually destroy ourselves. God's megaphone to a deaf world. So when Jesus heals the man with leprosy, actually heals that healing was actually to restore his ability to experience pain and suffering. I remember when I was younger, I, I found this bump on my back. And I went to the doctor to get it checked out. He's like, that's messed up. And so they sent me to surgery, or they sent me to get it checked out. Um, and I had something called spondylolisthesis. And they said, you know, if you can manage the pain... Um, do as long as you can, and then we'll get surgery down the road if we need to. So, you know, I went through 10 years of living with this, and the pain would get increasingly worse over time uh, to the point where I would just experience temporary paralysis, you know, when I get my back bumped or I take a step that I didn't know was there. Uh, so I got to this extreme point where I had to go back and get it checked out. Uh, and the guy asked me if I had lost function of my, you know, bodily functions. He said, are you urinating all over yourself? Are you going to the bathroom in your pants? And I said, no. He said, because that's actually the next step that's about to happen. If you don't get a surgery, I was like, I got to get that surgery. That's, that's not okay with me. But these, these things were building as warning signs that something wasn't right in my back. And then if I left it unattended, it would just actually get worse and worse and worse. Socrates said, how singular is the thing called pleasure and how curiously related to pain, which might be thought to be the opposite of it. Yet he who pursues either is generally compelled to take the other. Their bodies are two, but they are joined by the same head. Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, if we spend our lives searching for happiness through comfort, security, luxury, it will actually elude you. Happiness recedes from those who pursue her. Happiness will come upon us unexpectedly as a byproduct, a surprising bonus for something that we have invested ourselves into. 
And most likely that thing that we invest ourselves into that is beyond ourselves, that is bigger than ourselves, will have an element of pain and discomfort to it. C.S. Lewis also says in The Problem of Pain that we want not so much a father but a grandfather in heaven. A God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so as long as they're content? Isn't that true? I I loved my grandparents growing up. Like chips, chocolate, they let me do whatever I want. I remember one time we were on a picnic and I really wanted my grandma to, you know, when we drove back to let me ride in the trunk of her car. And she thought that was a great idea. If you want to ride in the trunk of your car, go for it. My mom found out about that, and she is livid. She's still mad to this day. And that was a long time ago. But grandparents, they let you do whatever you want. And so we love our grandparents. And C.S. Lewis says, what we really want is a grandfather in heaven who just lets us do what we want. But we know that some of those things we want don't really fly with mom and dad. In fact, when they love us enough, they're actually willing to let us experience suffering and pain so that we can realize that those things that we want are not actually all that helpful for us. I want to read an excerpt for you from Philip Yancey's book, um, Where is God When It Hurts? And he's, he's referring to the story of this Dr. Brand. He said, Dr. Brand received a Several million dollar grant for the express purpose of designing an artificial pain system. He knew that people with diseases like leprosy and diabetes were in grave danger of losing fingers, toes, and even entire limbs simply because their warning system of pain had been silenced. They were literally destroying themselves unaware. Perhaps he could design a simple substitute that would alert them to the worst dangers. So in this project, Dr. Brand had to think like the creator, anticipating the needs of the body. For instance, he signed on three professors of electronic engineering, a bioengineer, and several research biochemists. The team decided to concentrate on fingertips, the part of the body most often used and therefore most vulnerable to abuse. They developed a kind of artificial nerve, a pressure-sensitive transducer that could be worn on the finger like a glove. When subjected to pressure, their electronic nerve triggered an electric current which would set off a warning signal. Dr. Brand and his assistants confronted daunting technical problems. The more they studied nerves, the more complex their task appeared. At what level of pressure should the sensor sound a warning? How could a mechanical sensor distinguish between the acceptable pressure of, say, grappling a railing and the unacceptable pressure of gripping a thorn bush? How could it be adjusted to allow for rigorous activities like playing tennis? Brand also recognized that nerve cells change their perception of pain to meet the body's need. Due to the pressure of inflammation, an infected finger may become 10 times more sensitive to pain. That's why a finger swollen from a hangnail feels awkward and in the way. Your body is telling you to give it time to heal. Nerve cells turn up the volume, amplifying bumps and scrapes that would normally go unreported. In no way could these well-funded scientists duplicate that feat with their current technology. The artificial sensors cost about $450 each, and it took many of them to protect a single hand or foot, but each new design would deteriorate from mental f- metal fatigue or corrosion after a few hundred uses. Each month, Dr. Brand and his colleagues gained more and more appreciation for the remarkable engineering of the body's pain network, which includes several hundred million center- sensors that function maintenance f- free throughout a healthy person's life. 
At first, Dr. Brand sought a way to make this artificial pain system work without actually hurting the patient. He had read the complaints of various philosophers against the created world. Why hadn't God designed a nervous system that protects us, but without the unpleasant aspects of pain? Here was his chance to improve on the original design with a protective system that didn't hurt the person. First, his team tried sending an audible signal through a hearing aid, a signal that would hum when the tissues were receiving normal pressures and buzz loudly when they were actually in danger. But the signal proved too easy to ignore. If a patient with a damaged hand was turning a screwdriver too hard and the loud warning signal went off, he would simply override it and turn the screwdriver anyways. This happened not once, but many times. People who did not feel pain could not be persuaded to trust the artificial sensors. Brand's team next tried blinking lights, but soon eliminated them for the same reason. Finally, they had to resort to electric shock, taping electrodes to a still-sensitive portion of the body, such as the armpit. People had to be forced to respond. Being alerted to the danger was not enough. The stimulus had to be unpleasant, just as pain is unpleasant. We also found out that the signal had to be out of the patient's reach, Brand says. For even intelligent people, if they wished to do something which they were afraid would activate the shock, if they were going to do something that would activate the shock, they would simply turn the switch off, do what they had in mind to do, and then switch it on again when there was no, da no danger of receiving an unpleasant signal. He said, I remember thinking how wise God had been in putting that pain out of reach for us. After five years of work, thousands of man hours, and several million dollars, Brandon and his associates abandoned the entire project. A warning system suitable for just one hand was so expensive, subject to frequent mechanical breakdowns, and hopelessly inadequate to interpret all the different sensations. A system sometimes called God's greatest mistake was far too complex for even the most sophisticated technology to mimic. That is why Dr. Brand says with utter sincerity that he thanks God for pain. By definition, pain is unpleasant, enough so to force us with, to withdraw our fingers from a stove, yet the very quality saves us from destruction. Unless warning signals demand response, we might not listen to them. Again, C.S. Lewis says, pain, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains, it is his megaphone for a deaf world. See, often we come to God and we say, God, why this pain? Why the suffering? Where is it coming from? What did I do? Who caused, who's causing it? And the Bible really doesn't answer that question. And if it does, it answers it with a variety of different answers. But the Bible does ask us a question, and God asks us a question. The question that we're asked is, how do we respond to pain? How do we respond to suffering? Do we wake up to God, or do we ignore him and just keep sleeping? I'm going to read just a couple of Bible passages that will kind of show you what I'm talking about. Paul writes, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because of your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, as so were not to, harm, not to be harmed in any way by us. 
Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So we see even in here, it's not really addressed what's the cause or why the sorrow is happening, but the focus is on how did people respond to the sorrow. If they responded in repentance, it was godly sorrow. If they didn't, it was worldly sorrow, which brings death. In Luke 13, it reads, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Hear the retributive suffering reference. Were they worse sinners because they suffered more than the others? I tell you, no. And our question is, okay, well, why did they suffer? Who caused the suffering? What's, what's behind that? Jesus doesn't even go there. He says, unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died at the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. We're like, Jesus doesn't answer a question, but he brings the question to us and says, what's your response to pain and suffering? Repentance is this fancy word that just means turning towards God. In John 9, similar situation. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus replied, neither this man or his parents. Hear the retributive suffering theology. Somebody must have sinned, something bad must have happened, and he's being punished by God, right? And Jesus doesn't actually respond to that question. He, said that that's, he just says that's not why the person's suffering. Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So does that mean that God caused the suffering, Satan caused the suffering, where did it come from? We don't get an answer, but Jesus continually brings us to this place of saying, how are you going to respond to the pain and suffering in your life in this world? Do we turn towards God or do we turn away from him? Do we become humble towards him or do we put him on the stand in judgment over him? Aristotle talked about the greatest good, the highest good, the ultimate end, and he said, the greatest good is happiness. All men seek happiness, and by happiness he meant being good. It's a different explanation or understanding definition back then than we have it now. There are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they will strive towards this goal. The reason some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both, but is interpreted in two different ways. Aristotle said, to be happy means to be good. So what is our end? What is the greatest good? Modernity, so the world that we live in, the modern world, says the greatest good is actually feeling good. But the ancients answered, the greatest good is being good. Suffering does not refute belief in a good God to the ancient mind because a good God might well sacrifice our subjective happiness for our objective happiness. So it's saying that if our understanding of God being good, us being good, is comfort, pleasure, security, then you will never be able to synthesize this idea of a good, all-powerful God that allows pain and suffering. But if we understand that God wants us to actually be shaped, transformed, to be good, then we can understand a good God who allows a certain element of suffering and pain. So as we end this morning, I want to invite you to think 
Think about our world. Think about the pain, the suffering going on in our world. And the question our world asks is, you know, is God good? What's happening? Why is this suffering happening? But do we recognize that pain and suffering, regardless of where it comes from, is the megaphone of God to a deaf world? And that we look at, you know, our phones, our computers, the news, and we say that this is God's megaphone, that something isn't right here. And in Romans 8, it says that all creation is groaning and yearning for God. Like in childbirth, you have the birth pangs. But this is, the whole purpose of those is that there's something better at the end and and the suffering in our world should actually awaken our hearts to a God that actually wants to bring healing. Do we hear the megaphone of God? Or do we ignore it and keep sleeping? In your life, Is there places that you personally have felt suffering, pain? And I know you want to go to the question, well, why am I suffering? Who's causing the suffering? The Bible doesn't help us answer that question, but it asks us the question of how are you going to respond to it? Are you going to let the suffering and shape you, bring you to your knees, and just come before God and recognize that it's his megaphone in a world that's deaf to him? I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to close with a song. I'm going to invite you to stand with us. How do you how do we respond to pain and suffering? Again, my goal is not to create confusion and say we have no answers, but just to come back to the invitation that's here that we see in Scripture that I believe that God gives to our world. How do we respond? And for the follower of Jesus, the answer is quite simply we respond like Jesus. And what does that mean? And next week we're going to look at Jesus as the crucified God and recognize that part of the reason we see this switch in understanding from the Old Testament to the New Testament is that God himself responded to pain and suffering in a radical way that nobody ever saw coming or ever expected. That he actually took pain and suffering on himself. And that changes everything. And if God responds to pain that way, what does that mean for us? That we, like Jesus, come before the Father and say, you know, God, I don't know why this is happening. If there's any other way, I would like you to show me it. But at the end of the day, I bow my knee to you and say, even though I don't understand it, I want to allow you to shape me, to grow me, to be more transformed and to reflect you in this world. Let's sing together. So I realize right now that I've, you know, you leave... I've left a lot of things hanging and, uh, and I can't sum it up in a nice conclusion. I just want to invite you to keep journeying with us to come back. But the, that song that we just finished with, the God, that oh no, God doesn't let go of us. That God can actually use all things that we experience for the good of those who love him.
And it doesn't, and when it says that in Romans 8, it doesn't mean that he causes all things. He just says, no matter what comes your way, for those hearts that are yielded towards him, he will use all of that for your ultimate good. And so even though we have questions, we, we, we just hang on to that in faith. And we trust that God is good, even though we don't always know how that works. But the question that he has this morning is, in the midst of all of your questions, in the midst of maybe different pains and sufferings that you might experience or that our world is experiencing, will we yield our hearts to him? Will we turn towards him, even without all the answers, and say, God, I trust that you're good, and I know that you can use all things, even these things, for my good and for your ultimate good. And that, I believe, is what an all-powerful God does. He doesn't control everything, but he can actually use everything for those hearts that are yielded towards him. So, let me pray, and then I just got a couple of brief announcements before you leave. Uh, Father, we just think of last week, and um, you know, G.K. Chesterton talked about trying to fit the heavens into our heads, and our heads will split. But if we can actually get our heads into the heavens and just stand in awe and wonder and say, we don't have all the answers, but God, we trust that you do. We trust that you are both good and powerful. And our response to all of these questions is just simply to yield ourselves to you, to bow our knee, to repent, which means turning towards you. So, Lord, for those in this room that have maybe experienced hurts, pains, sufferings, and turned away from you, Lord, I pray that they would recognize that you are not against them, that you're actually calling them. And when they say, this isn't right, that you agree with them, you say, no, it's not right, but will you turn to me? I'm against the pain and the suffering and the injustice in this world. And Lord, you want to partner with us and you want us to yield to you. So God, I pray that that would be our heart response this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.